Our first scripture reading today comes from the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, reading verses 9 through 12. And if you want to follow along in your Red Pew Bibles, that's on page 944. Zechariah 9, 9 through 12. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will, he will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope. Even now I will announce that I will restore twice as much to you. Our second reading today will be read by Jamie Bloom. This reading is from Revolutions 5, 1 through 6, page 1218 in Pew Bible. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break open the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Don't weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as it has been being slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the, and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Revolution, Revolutions 5, 1, 6. This is the word of, God, of the Lord. I was reminded of this saying um, in the theater that one never wants to perform with children or with animals because, of course, everyone will just pay attention to the children and the animals. So today, I'm really glad Knox doesn't have a real donkey that we bring to Palm Sunday because that would be a rough day. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the sun and the weather. We thank you for this opportunity we have to gather and to remember and to hear your words spoken into our lives. And so we pray that you would make us receptive to hear that word, 
that you would speak directly to us and that we would understand what it is you have for us this day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Over this season of Lent, we've been looking at the cross in a number of different ways. So we've been picking up the cross and turning it from side to side and holding it in different kinds of light and trying to understand the depth and the breadth and the fullness of what this cross, what this event, the crucifixion of Jesus means. I think often we, we just get used to looking at it this one way. And so we've been practicing together, appreciating its many facets. And today we're going to talk about this way of looking at the cross that's been called Christus Victor. Christ is Victor, Christ victorious. And it's one of the more ancient ways that the church has understood the cross of Jesus Christ. And somehow we've forgotten it from time to time. And so today we're going to try to remember together. And I think that this Palm Sunday narrative probably provides for us some of the best insights into this way of understanding the cross. It gives us this amazing, unique angle. And so it is a beautiful coincidence and planning that brings Palm Sunday and this view of the cross together. So let's go back to that scene that we had read for us during the children's moment. And let's think about its context together. For some time now, the Romans had supported puppet kings in Israel, in this family of the Herods. So they'd had influence for some time. But now there were also Roman prefects in Jerusalem and Israel to ensure that Rome's interests were maintained and represented at all times. Pontius Pilate was only the second such prefect in all of Judea. And so it's safe to, for us to say that in the time of Jesus, this Roman occupation was still fairly new to the people. The progression of Roman influence to the point that it was at in this story had happened over the last couple of generations, but this fuller force, this real sense that Rome was controlling things, was new. And so people were still getting used to it. They were still getting acclimated to what this new Roman rule meant for them and for their lives. What it seemed to mean was that Rome was calling more and more of the shots, and their leaders were calling fewer and fewer. But at this point in time, there had not yet been any major rebellion in the province of Judea. People were still trying to figure it out. This is all to say that the political situation in Israel during the life and ministry of Jesus was a bit tense. And the image of a Roman legion marching into Jerusalem first to sack it on their way back from a conquest, and then later coming back victorious and marching into the city to establish their prefect, those images were fresh in the minds of the people in the story that we read today. In fact, at the time of Jesus, there had been no major rebellion, but rebellion was boiling underneath the surface. The Israelites were ready for somebody to make the first move. There was this whole group of people called the Zealots that carried swords at their side and desired armed rebellion. People were getting ready for something. And the Romans were ready for something too. They were ready to stop any possible uprising in its tracks with that instrument of torture and humiliation, which we have identified as the symbol of this season, the cross. 
So we hear the people crying and singing out, Hosanna, Hosanna. Hosanna, by the time of the New Testament, was a shout of praise. But it's a curious shout of praise because it's Hebrew. And it means something. And it literally means save us. Some commentators think that's not strong enough. And they translate it, save now. It's an urgent plea, a cry for help. There is a yearning for saving from the people that worship Jesus on that day. Saving from Rome, yes. But we know that Rome wasn't the only problem that existed for the Israelites all those years ago. Rome just happened to be the obvious problem. But if Rome were to have disappeared overnight, there were still going to be lots of issues for the people of Israel. There was still going to be the question about the kings and the priests, Which authority would be calling all the shots now? And all political discussion aside, the people of Israel were still going to need their savior to do something bigger for them. They would still need salvation from the power of sin and death that that had held them and the world in its grips for far too long. There was still going to be the question about God and what God was doing in the world and what God's purposes for Israel were. And a very deep need for salvation is evident in this story, even deeper than the one that the people could identify or were anticipating when they sang Hosanna to Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem. We're not all that different today in Canada. We may not live under the oppressive regime of a foreign power, or have a tyrant for a government. But there are still places of turmoil and conflict in this world and in our own country. In this world, there are places where people feel the need to take up arms against their government for the hope of a better life, very much like the zealots did in Jesus' time, where civil wars break out and innocent people are harmed in the fallout. We need only to remember the chemical weapon attack in Syria and the ongoing civil war there for a very poignant and heartbreaking example of how this goes on even today, this struggle for peace in the world. And we see in stories like the story of the Libyan civil war that the leaders who replace those tyrants aren't always more stable or any better themselves. As we've seen through history, sometimes, in fact, they're much worse. So world peace is often the prayer of many people in our day and age. And we miss that this too is the limited and obvious salvation that we know we need. But peace from acts of war would not solve all of our many problems. For many democratic nations that have not declared war in decades, internal politics remain divisive and sometimes vicious. People are still discriminated against in those places. And even with the enjoyment of a state without war, people are taught to view each other as the enemy as they compete with each other to climb corporate ladders or race to acquire and amass goods and resources at the expense of many others. World peace is just one of our many problems. And it's just the problem that we've been able to convince ourselves is the thing that we need salvation from. 
We've been able to push aside these other problems for too long because there's a more obvious one looking us in the face. These problems that we can see, but that we feel that we have no power over. We convince ourselves that if only God would intervene in those situations, if only God would still the hands of evildoers, that would solve all the world's problems. But it's not true. It's a lie that we've convinced ourselves of. And I believe that our experiences, even in Canada, peaceful and prosperous as we convince ourselves we are, indicate that the salvation we need, too, is bigger than this. We can be like those Israelites, praising Jesus with cries of Hosanna, with no appreciation for the salvation that we really need saying, save us, and having deluded ourselves into thinking that the real problems we face are those obvious ones and not the hidden, deep-rooted problem that we'd rather not think about. In recent months, we've been challenged as a congregation through the series on Ephesians and through some of these sermons on views of the cross to think about our world in a bigger and different way, to expand our worldview to acknowledge that there are powers and principalities. There are unseen forces of human wills and cultures and unseen forces of supernatural wills and schemes influencing our world and shaping our lives. To consider that the actions of God in this world are not only seen, but also importantly unseen. And that the enemies we face are not flesh and blood, but the rulers, the principalities, and the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In Israel, as Jesus returned to enter Jerusalem, the enemies that the people who worship Jesus want to see destroyed are flesh and our blood. They're Caesar and Rome and Pilate sitting on the throne in Judea and cohorts of Roman soldiers scattered throughout the province. So they are all too happy for Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, they had anticipated this moment when somebody better would conquer them, when somebody better would ride into Jerusalem and throw out the Romans. That image of the Roman victor entering into the city and installing their prefect could now be undone by this new image of the Jewish victor, as if somebody who conquered like Rome conquers could be any better. But the trouble is, as we know, that Jesus' entry isn't the Roman victory procession. Zechariah 9.9 begins, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious. And the verse goes on. But I think the people worshiping Jesus that day probably stopped about there. That's what they were looking for. A king coming to them, righteous and victorious. A righteous king, a just king, victorious in war, glorious in his splendor. That's what they've been looking for. A better Roman to rule them. But as we heard, the verse does continue. It says, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, Righteous and victorious, having salvation, but lowly. 
The righteousness of Jesus Christ is not displayed in the pomp and the circumstance of the Roman conquerors. It is displayed in the lowliness and the humility of a donkey. This donkey ride into Jerusalem is more than just not the victory parade of the Romans. It makes a mockery of it. This is almost political sketch comedy. You could anticipate seeing something like this on the Saturday Night Live of their day. This is making a farce of the Romans. And this mockery of the Roman oppression and the expectations of the people is where Jesus' victory is first proclaimed and first acknowledged, victorious and riding on a donkey. Jesus rides a donkey. He doesn't ride a majestic steed like we heard the children told this morning. He doesn't come in pulled on his chariot of war. Zechariah 9 continues by explaining in this prophetic vision, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus isn't playing the game that the Roman conquerors played. He wasn't going to ride in on a chariot. He w- if a horse was available, he wouldn't have said, I'll have that one instead. He was always going to ride in on a donkey because his purpose was to take away those instruments of war, to break the battle bow, to proclaim peace, to institute his rule and his reign, not to reaffirm the rules and the reigns of all the nations that had ever conquered other nations. With a donkey ride into Jerusalem, Jesus Christ proclaims peace. And the people miss it. Of course they miss it. I think every time we read the Bible and stories with the disciples or crowds of people, we just sort of shake our heads at those silly people who miss the point, and they miss it again. But we would miss it too, because the donkey may as well have been the Roman chariot for the people that day, and Jesus may as well have been their next Caesar, because that's all they wanted, and that's all they were going to see. They saw Jesus ready to take his throne and to maintain his power by keeping people under his thumb, and they were happy with that because at least he was like them. At least he wasn't a Roman. That would have been fine if he did that. They missed that this isn't the salvation that they've been anticipating, that this is a better salvation. And so when the Romans do crucify Jesus, as we know they do, it's rebellion put down. Rebellion over as far as they're concerned. The message was sure to go out. Jesus of Nazareth has failed. He was not victorious because he died on a cross. The Romans have won the day. But of course, we know that the battle was not explicitly against Rome or against any person in Rome. Just as there was a bigger story happening in that donkey ride into Jerusalem, that made it truly a triumphal entry, a godly victory procession. There was also a bigger story happening on the cross. And on the cross of Jesus, a bigger victory was won than anyone had anticipated. Colossians 2 verse 15 says, And having disarmed the rulers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, 
triumphing over them on the cross. You see, just as the Romans had a game they played when they conquered a place, a game that they played which instilled fear and perpetuated violence and aimed to ensure that everybody knew their place in the world, the principalities and the powers have a game too. The devil has a way of working in this world, using the powers of sin and of death to intimidate, to drive people with fear or with guilt. Just as Jesus subverts the way of Rome in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he subverts the way of the devil in his death on the cross. He hangs on the cross, and the spectacle that is made is not of him, though anyone looking at him would think it was. Because the crown of thorns, or the sign which called him the king of the Jews, those things were true. And the truth doesn't really make a mockery of someone. Instead, the mockery that is made is of the now impotent powers which used everything they could to try to stop this Jesus, to try to stop his unavoidable victory. The powers which did not entice him away from the Father's path for him, which exposed themselves as being false and fake and hopeless to do anything as a man hung there on a cross. And they couldn't do anything about it because he was going to die. And he was going to show that those powers didn't put him there, that he put himself there, and that he was finishing a good work for the sake of a world that didn't have a clue what it was doing. Jesus is victorious over Rome. Even when it seems like Rome has the last word in his crucifixion and quelled rebellion that never was, because he rides a donkey and he proclaims peace. Jesus is victorious over death and the devil because he hangs on a cross and exposes that the threat the devil hung over our heads for too long was futile and he submits himself to that threatened fate of death in order to overcome death for us all. We continue to be tempted when we think of this image of Jesus Christ as victor to continue to think of him as the conquering hero of our world and of our imaginations, of our cultures, conquering the way the world has always conquered. But it is precisely because he does not conquer how the devil conquered, or how the world conquers, that he is victorious as he enters Jerusalem, despite Rome and all the powers of men, and that he is victorious as he hangs on a cross, despite the devil and all the forces of evil, and that he is victorious even now as he reigns in heaven, able to rightly claim that this world is his own. I love that passage from Revelation that Jamie read for us today. In this story, John is having this vision of heaven. And he's standing in heaven and he's waiting for somebody to open this scroll. And this scroll is the scroll which is almost a deed to the universe. When it's read, it's going to proclaim that God owns the world and that his kingdom is inaugurated forever and ever. And so an angel calls out asking, who will open it? Who has the power to open this scroll? And nobody could open it. Nobody in heaven, nobody on earth 
nobody under the earth. And so John weeps, and he weeps loudly, he says, because God's kingdom cannot be fulfilled. God's kingdom cannot be proclaimed to the world. That's sad, and that's heartbreaking. And so he's weeping, and he's only consoled when an elder turns to him and says, don't weep. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah is victorious. Look, the root of David has conquered, and he can open the scroll. And I can just imagine John looking up at this point. And tears are probably still on his cheeks, and his face is probably red from all the crying, and his eyes are probably puffy. And he looks, and he must have thought he was looking wrong. Because what does he see there? Does he see a roaring lion? Does he see a zealot standing with his sword in his hand? No. The text says he sees a lamb standing as if it had been slain. That's not what he was expecting to see. That's not what we've been expecting to see. That's not what the worshipers of Jesus on his way to Jerusalem were expecting to see. The theologian Miroslav Wolf says this of this vision of heaven. At the very heart of the one who sits on the throne is the cross. The world to come is ruled by the one who on the cross took violence on himself in order to conquer and embrace the enemy. The Lamb's rule is legitimized not by the sword, but by his wounds. The goal of its rule is not to subject, but to make people reign forever and ever. With the Lamb at the center of the throne, the distance between the throne and the subjects has collapsed in the embrace of the triune God. Christ is victorious. Christ is victorious against those same systems and powers which oppress his creation and oppose his rule, not by operating within them, but by overcoming them. To overcome the victory march of war, he creates a triumphal procession of peace. To overcome the power of death, he submits himself fully to it and the procession of life which follows it. He overcomes the power of death. This is good news not only for Israel and not only for us today, but for all of creation because in the overcoming of sin and death and the devil, Christ is victorious to open the scroll which no one can open and to inaugurate the kingdom which no one could fulfill. Jesus is victorious over the world and all it contains because he overcomes it. He endures what it offers and he thrives. He sees the way it works and he subverts those ways. He refuses to use the same playbook as the devil or Rome or Syria. And on the throne is a slain lamb. A slain lamb, a slain lamb who does not seek to subject people, but to embrace them. This is the victory of Jesus Christ. And it's easy for us in the majesty of Easter to forget that we needed this cross, that this victory of Jesus Christ is anchored by the cross. 
and ensured for eternity by the cross, because on it and by it, Christ was enthroned forever in a much better kingdom than any kingdom we'd been anticipating, and a kingdom that we have yet to see in its fullness, but that only this truly victorious Christ can usher in. So rejoice greatly, daughter Knox. Shout, daughter Church. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, humbly and hanging on a cross. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. This will all happen in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Jesus Christ, you are victorious. And we worship the victory that we still can't fully understand or imagine. Because we've been trained to think of victory how we've always thought of victory and how this world has always thought of victory. And so we pray in this week of journeying toward that cross that you would help us understand how you're victorious in death, how death overcomes death. And when we reach that point where we really can't understand anymore that you would overwhelm us with the sense of mystery hidden in this cross. Help us to anticipate this better kingdom which you promise. We pray these things in your powerful name. Amen. Oh,